0: The beginning of the strange new world of the Bible is indeed strange and new. God creates it all through the power of speech. God says, let there be light and there is light. God makes the entirety of the cosmos and in the culmination of all things, God makes humankind in God's own image fashioned from the earth. Given the breath of the spirit, our ancestral parents, they walk in paradise. But this is when the story gets really good. Now, I often wonder why certain stories from the Bible are known among those who don't come to church. You know, Because of the ubiquity of things like Christmas celebrations, there's a pretty good chance that even if you've never been to church before, if you see a manger with a little baby and some wise men, you probably have an idea about what's going on there. Like I said earlier with the, the story of the, the tweenage boy, A lot of people know the story of David and Goliath because the underdog story is one we return to again and again, whether people have ever read that story from the Bible or not. But to me, the story of Adam and Eve, it might quite possibly be the most well-known story from the Bible, whether you've ever been to church or not. I think it's well-known for good reason. It's short. It's simple It gives an explanation for why things are the way they are, though it cannot be explained in a way that ever leaves us satisfied, which is why I think we keep coming back to the story again and again and again. Last week, Fred, cover your ears for a moment. Last week, Fred Sisler... I'm not done yet, Fred. (laughs) Last week, Fred Sisler, guest preacher extraordinaire, said in his sermon... Genesis doesn't give us the how, but it gives us the wow. I really, really like that. Genesis doesn't give us the how, it gives us the wow. There is a lot of wow in this story, but perhaps by the time we get to Genesis 3, that wow turns into a woe. Ab and Eve are in paradise. Now, when I say the word paradise, for you, that might, in your head, you might conjure up images of, of being on a beach uh, you might have a drink that's some sort of different color with a paper umbrella resting in the top of it. That, that might be paradise for you, but in the strange new world of the Bible, per, uh, being in paradise is just being in simple and perfect communion with God, which, if we're being honest with ourselves, might not sound like paradise to us. I mean, we can scarcely imagine how communal this communion would be because it sounds so wrong. If it sounds wrong to you, it's probably because the idea of being too intimately connected with anything, let alone God, is no one's idea of a good time. It's why that seventh grade boy said to me, if I were naked and God came looking for me, I'd go hiding too. We don't want to be too close to anyone about anything because we know what we're really like behind closed doors, We know what's buried deep in our internet search histories. We know about our knee-jerk reactions that we don't want anybody else to know about. We know that even though we can point out the splinter in someone else's eye, we've got a log in our own. We know that, to use Paul's language, not one of us is righteous. No, not one. All of us, the tall and the small, we are all masters of blocking out the grim realities of life. We can read a frightening article about something like the devastating effects of global warming, or we can listen to a podcast about the terror of our current economic situation, but when push comes to shove, we can definitely pretend like everything's fine. Like everything is just fine. (laughs) Have you seen this before? Uh, This is a GIF. It's a meme online. I think this is the perfect GIF for the situation that we find ourselves in. It's like the world around us is on fire, and we just keep sipping on our coffee, thinking, everything's fine. Everything's fine. We might do this, but the Bible never, ever does. Never. Oddly enough, this is why the strange new world of the Bible is, in fact, realer than our own world, because it tells the truth, and we insist on telling lies. This book, it begins with paradise, perfect communion, which might sound like uncomfortable communion, but by chapter 11, just eight chapters from now, we encounter murder, near genocide, lying, loads and loads of violence, and more. Which begs the question how do we get from perfect paradise to the world we're in right now? As I mentioned before, about 100 years ago, the Daily Mail in London, a newspaper, put out a request for answers to, uh, for essays that answered a question. The question was what's wrong with the world? And all these people send in all these essays, but the, the writer and theologian, uh, G.K. Chesterton, he responded with only two words. What's wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton said, I am. I am what's wrong with the world. You see, the story of Adam and Eve, it's real. It's realer than we often give it credit for because their story is our story. They're in paradise, and they only have one rule they have to follow. Can you imagine... Can you imagine that you only had one thing? You have the whole world at your fingertips. You can do anything you want, truly anything, except for one little thing. You see that tree over there? Don't touch that tree. Every other tree, every other thing, perfectly fine. Don't touch that one. And then the serpent comes in. Psst, Eve. Did God tell you you couldn't eat from every tree? Oh, no, you silly serpent. We're not allowed to eat from that one tree. Oh, Don't you find that a little odd, Eve? I mean, why would God give you all these other trees but not this one? Isn't God the God of love? It doesn't sound very loving to me. Well, God said that if if we eat it, we'll, we'll die. Oh, come on, Eve, you really believe that? Why would God go through all the trouble to give you life only to take it away and that's all it takes? Just the tiniest little seed of doubt. And it's the end of the beginning. She reaches for the tree, so, so does her husband. Their eyes are open. That's the way scripture puts it. The effect is instantaneous. They know what they didn't know, and there is no going back. Now, what do they do? They've eaten from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They have the knowledge of good and evil. They have become like God. And what do they do with it? Do they do they take on the world? Are they filled up? Are they puffed up with bravado? No, they're afraid. They're afraid. They see themselves for who they really are and they can't stand what they see. So they take some fig leaves and they cover themselves and they hide. It's so perfect that they hide because we still hide all the time. We hide in our jobs, we hide in the bottom of a bottle, we hide in our busyness. Sometimes we hide in our children, we hide in our wealth, we hide in our power. And it's while we're hiding, it's in our hiding that God shows up and says, Freeman, where are you? Sophia, where are you? Chris, where are you? Notice, God doesn't say, who are you? God doesn't come with with judgments about our morality. God doesn't come with ethical inquiries. God doesn't want to know who we are. God wants to know where we are. And the answer is the same for all of us We're lost. We might not think we're lost. Like I said, we're all pretty good at making it seem like everything is fine. We can convince ourselves that we know exactly where we are on the road to life. But when we take a good hard look in the mirror, we know that we are not as we ought to be. That the condition of our condition ain't good. And typically, because this is where the scripture ends, it's also where the sermon ends. Someone like me stands up in front of all of you and says, Adam and Eve are bad you and I are bad, we need to stop being so bad. And you know what? That might not be such a bad thing. Sometimes discovering and confronting our badness, it might lead to goodness. But have you ever told someone who was losing their mind to calm down and has it ever worked? Have you ever found someone in the midst of their badness and said, you need to stop being so bad and has it ever worked? It usually just leads to more badness or more anxiety or more fear. And notably, if that's the way the scripture ends, if that's the way that the sermon ends, it makes it all about us. It's about our choice and our failure and our punishment. But the Bible isn't about us first. It's about God first. But notice, almost everything I've said in the sermon has absolutely nothing to do with God. Where is God in this? What does God do? God comes looking for us. You see, in the strange new world of the Bible, it is as a whole a story of God's unyielding desire for us from the very first of our parents in the garden of eden to God as the good shepherd who goes after the one who's lost leaving the 99 behind into the eschaton God looks for us when they eat from the tree that is forbidden God does not hurl down lightning bolts God doesn't spin together a tornado out of wrath God walks in the garden and asks where are you Adam and Eve, you and me, we are all lost, truly, completely lost. And for some reason, in all of our lostness, we've decided that our job is to find ourselves. That's why we're always forever giving ourselves over to these latest fads of self-discovery, some of which are probably fine. We're trying to fix all these things with us. We're trying to make the world a better place, and probably we've maybe done that a little bit but we've done all sorts of crazy things in the name of progress to try to make this world look more like Eden, to find ourselves when we're lost. You know, we got rid of slavery. It's a wonderful thing we did, but do you know that our country has the highest rate of incarceration of any developed nation in the world? We keep improving, we keep improving our medical systems, but American lifespans have diminished for the first time in 50 years, in large part because of the opioid epidemic, a drug that we made for ourselves. I have a lot of examples of this. I'm sure all of you have examples of this, of things we've done in the name of progress where we feel like we've taken a step forward, but what we've also done is taken a step backward. And yet, the Bible has so many yets. It's my favorite word in the Bible. And yet, God does not give up on us. This story, it begins in the garden, but it doesn't end there. The story continues through the strange and wild wilderness days of Abraham. It weaves through the journey to Egypt and back again through Jacob and Joseph. It delivers through miracles made manifest in Moses. It rises through the power of David and Solomon. It dances through the prophets who proclaim the word of the Lord. It endures through droughts and famines. It connects the lives of the powerful and the powerless. It brings down the mighty. It lifts up the lowly. This is a story we know it's our story. But here in Genesis 3, the story we come back to over and over again, it's got so many good details, but the one that smacks me in the face every time I read it is that when they see the truth, Adam and Eve, did you notice where they hide? They hide behind a tree. They hide behind a tree. You see, God's unending search for us it eventually leads to a small little town called Bethlehem. It trudges through Galilee. It sails over the sea. It tells of publicans and Pharisees. It walks the streets of Jerusalem, turns over the tables in the temple, and marches up the hill to a place called the skull, called Golgotha, and it hangs on a tree for people like you and me. It breaks free three days later on Easter. Our first parents, they they hide behind a tree in their shame, but Jesus hangs on a tree. A tree that we call the cross. That's why we put a cross in our sanctuary, because it is a never-ending proclamation that God never stops looking for us. That no amount of badness can ever hold a light to the love that refuses to let us go. That God is always the one who makes a way where there is no way. I said that I've been gone the last few days at annual conference. This is a picture I took while I was at annual conference. It's, I'm trying to be better about going to hang out with 3,000 Methodists once a year. It can be a little tough sometimes. Larry has a great time when he's at conference. So it's a little bit harder for me to enjoy myself because there's a lot of politicking. There's a lot of bureaucracy. There's a lot of voting on things that really don't matter much at all. And it's hard to kind of keep my hope and my faith in the midst of all this. But this week, something happened. I need to explain the picture a little bit, so bear with me. This is going to get kind of thick into Methodism, so just hold on to your pews for just a second. Uh, As it currently stands in Methodism, uh, there are rules that pastors are supposed to follow, things you can do and things you can't do. And as a pastor, if you do something you're not supposed to do, a charge can be filed against you. And if a charge is filed against you, a church trial has to happen. And it has to happen by our rules within 90 days of the charge and it has to come to what's called a just resolution which means the party who has accused the clergy person and the clergy person him or herself they have to agree that this is going to be the punishment for what the clergy person did it has to be 90 days that's part of our rules it's a really important thing well there is a clergy person in the virginia annual conference who presided over a same-sex union which as it currently stands is against the rules in the united methodist church someone filed a charge against him because he broke the rules, and they went to trial. And they were supposed to have 90 days and come up with a resolution. It's been a 1,000 days since they've come to a decision. Now, that might not seem like much. You know, this is like church politics, breaking the rules, going to church trial, all that sort of stuff. But there is a really important thing involved here because if you are under complaint, if someone has filed a charge against you, you can't change your status With the church. I know, again, I see eyes glazing over. Just hold on. If you have a child as a pastor and you want to go on paternity leave or maternity leave, you have to request that leave. And if you're under complaint, you're not allowed to take leave. The pastor who has been waiting a thousand days for this to come to a resolution, his wife had a baby a few months ago who was born medically fragile and spent months in the NICU and he wasn't allowed to go. Now he could go, he couldn't take time off from work to go see his fragile baby. Because for a thousand days, he's been waiting for a decision to be made. And so during annual conference a few days ago, he requested that the bishop finally make a decision or at least let it go to the judicial council, which is the way we let these things be decided so that it will finally come to a close. He begged and he pleaded, and it kept getting brushed aside even at annual conference. And so while he stood in front of everybody else, someone near me stood up and walked down to the front and stood next to him. And then another person stood up and walked down and stood next to him. And then I stood up and I walked down to stand next to him. And by the time all of us got there, there were almost more people standing at the front surrounding him than there were people sitting at the annual conference. We asked for something to be done and we waited and we waited. And, and while I was there, I, there were some friends that I have among ministry and we were all kind of standing there praying and hoping for something to, to finally be done. And I noticed that not only was it clergy and lay people, but we had youth. We have delegates who, who are young people from our church. And there was a, a, a taller looking teenager who was standing next to me. And I looked at his face. I'd never met him before. And he looked so nervous and so scared. I and mean, here he goes, he has stood up in a demonstration, a very peaceful demonstration. He has stood up for something and he is standing up there next to me and he looks really nervous, really afraid. while I was standing there next to him waiting for something to happen, I, I heard behind me a man screaming and pushing his way through the crowd at the front and I heard him yell, that's my son up there. I need to get to my son up there right now. And he started pushing people out of the way. And I was afraid. And I thought I might have to stand in between this father and his son. But when he got to me, he pushed me aside and he wrapped his arms around his kid. He said, I've never been more proud of you. And I love you. And someone nearby started singing. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Spirit of the living God, Melt me, mold me, fill me, use me, Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. And by the time we got to the end of that verse, all 3,000 people were singing. Life is a really long game of hide and seek, and God always wins. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.